Welcome to The Print Shop and my podcast, Dad's Hometown Memories. In this segment, I want to give some history of the waterways that flow through our municipality and the rivers and streams that the first settlers used for their ways of transportation and delivery of goods and services. They were the lifeline for existence in the early days. I also want to include some history of the hamlets, villages and crossroads that were established on these waterways by these settlers. Names of the rivers, creeks, streams, etc. were, starting with the larger ones, the Chippewa Creek, first called Shamanda by the neutral Indians. Newcomers called the stream the Chippewa or the Chippewa. Records show of Lieutenant Governor Simcoe crossing overland from the Grand River to the Chippewa and downstream on his way back to Niagara. Father Hennepin, it is noticed, slept on the banks of the Chippewa in 1678. In July 1792, by government proclamation, changed the name to the Welland River. The early pioneers used this river as their lifeline and their highway to connect to outside world. Fish was very plentiful and the clean water supplied good food and water for man and animals alike. Pioneer ingenuity soon harnessed the water to supply power for saw and grist mills built along the banks. Winding 100 miles in a distance of 50 or 60 miles from its source, the river has often caused flooding problems which have resulted in considerable crop damage on low-lying fields. However, a dam built upstream in Glanbrook has helped to regulate the water level and alleviate some of the flooding problems. Abraham Iredell reports on his survey on the concession lines of the township of Caister in 1795. He also begins at the southwest angle of the township of Gainsborough on the Indian line. In this survey, he includes the following names of the smaller creeks, such as Mill Creek, Mud Creek, Moores Creek, Wolf Creek, and Beaver Creek. With the great stands of trees in the township, the early settlers cut logs and rafted them down the Chippewa to Port Robinson. Here they were sawed and rafted from here to the Niagara River, where they crossed to Tonawanda. At this point, Tonawanda was taking the lead as a lumber port by shipment down the Erie Canal to New York. That was free trade back then and with plenty of hard work and and determination. In those early days, the land given to the early settler was called a patent and was measured in chains and links, and usually 200 acres in size. Now back to the waterways. There is a small creek called Oswego, which is a fork of the Chippewa in Gainsborough Township. Other small creeks, namely Sucker Creek, 15 Mile, Parkers, and Ash Creek. In South Grimsby, Caister, and Gainsborough Townships, the 20 Mile Creek flows and empties into Lake Ontario near Jordan and Lincoln. Also, the North Creek is a small contributory that flows through South Grimsby and Gainsborough and into the 20, as well as there are small creeks in Gainsborough named Mud Creek, Beaver Creek, and Sixteen Mile Creek. In the Atlas of Lincoln and Welland, published in 1876, it shows a Black Creek as a contributory of the 20 just west of Smithville. Water was always the drawing force for inhabitants to establish a place for business and homes along the banks of the rivers and creeks. 
Here in Gainesburg Township, the Chippewa, and now named the Welland River, the community of Wellenport was inhabited around 1795 to 1797. The location of the village is on the south side of Gainesburg Township in lots 14 to 16 of Concession 1 and is unique in that it was first settled as the Narrows and its progress influenced by a reliance on river travel. The original name, the Narrows, was derived from the narrow strip or ridge of land only a few rods wide where the Beaver Creek narrowly escapes uniting with the Chippewa River, more widely known as the Welland River. It is a shame that the many generations following have severely polluted these main waterways. I can remember when skating and playing shinny hockey on these creeks, we would drink from a hole which we broke through the ice surface. We are not able to do that today, and it is my belief that the conservation of these rivers and creeks, which are under supervision by local and provincial authorities, they have allowed the deterioration of fresh water and the fish habitat. The many small creeks have been infested with willow trees and other wild bush. The initial land grant from the Crown was to George Kralinger for Lot 14, Concession 1, in 1798. Other names shown as early settlers were William Dills, Samuel G. Wiggins, William Street, Service, Humphrey, Meisner, Heslop, Horton, and years later, family names such as Holmes, Cushman, and the Cavers families years later. By 1820, a sawmill and a gristmill were operating in the west part of the village. A raceway was built from the Beaver Creek to the Chippewa to provide the necessary power for the mills. There was also a distillery and a tannery located in the area. The first general store was opened by George Humphrey and supplies would arrive from Old Niagara and Buffalo via the Chippewa. The river was used all seasons of the year by boat and sleds. About 1880, lots were being sold for residential and business development. In 1837, William Lyon Mackenzie created a little excitement when he stopped in the area when he made his escape to the United States during the attempted rebellion in Upper Canada where he stayed at the home of Samuel Wiggins. The sawmill was situated where John Shilster's home is today in the center of the village. Logs and lumber over the early years was rafted down the river to be sold in Niagara Falls, Buffalo, and Tonawanda. The first post office was established in 1841, and the name given was Wellen Port. Prior to this, residents had to pick up their mail in Smithville or St. Catharines. The location of the first office was in the back of a bar room in a hotel operated by Luke Cavers. A courier on horseback delivered the mail from Port Robinson to Canberra and visited all the small villages along the way, which took a full day. Over the years, many local residents were appointed postmasters, such as Samuel Holmes, Dilly Holmes, James R. Goring, John L. Heslop, Wellington Gilmore, James Coleman operated a red and white store along with a post office. Ada Spencer Coleman, Frank Hiles, then his wife Ada Spencer Hiles, Dorothy Culver, plus others as the years progressed. 
The post office also has two rural routes, which it serves the rural area and has since 1913. In the 1860s, the population increased substantially when many Americans came to Canada to avoid the draft for the Civil War. During this time, four hotels were in operation in the village and three large barges were built to deliver lumber and other supplies up and down the Chippewa. The first bridge to connect to the south was a float bridge and was built in 1837. There have been many bridges since and several of them were swing bridges and had to be swung open for the barges to go upstream to Port Davidson. The present bridge was built in 1938 and is of concrete and steel and is the gateway from the number three highway to the Queen Elizabeth Highway. Wellport and the rural area with a number of farmers shipped a lot of wheat on the waterway in the early days. Over the years, Wellport has had some very disastrous fires. On January 2, 1882, fire broke out and destroyed 20 buildings on the north side of Main Street and it is believed no lives were lost in all that destruction. In 1899, the Empire Store, which was a cooperative venture, was built on the southeast corner of Main Street. Mr. James Ross was one of the leaders in this cooperative, and he became the first manager. The business thrived for a number of years, and later in the 1900s, it became a feed mill, and the post office was established there for a few years under the ownership of Nelson Chadwick. Then in 1945, the building burned along with the residents. Malcolm Dockstader and his father Joseph rebuilt the mill. August 24, 1910, fire destroyed part of the north side of the village, damaged many, many of the local businesses, including the Durham Hotel. In rebuilding this section of the village, many of the new structures used the foundations of the older buildings. Buildings destroyed in this fire included the Meisner's Hall, High's Taylor Shop, and Gracie's Store. J.R. Goring's store burned in 1882, and after rebuilding it, it was also lost in the fire of 1910. In recollections by some of the elder residents of the area, commercial businesses that thrived over the years were a grist mill operated by Daddy Cooper, a cheese box factory which used local logs for the construction of the big boxes. Jim Sheldon operated a grocery store and next was a boot and shoe shop operated by Peter Swartz where he made and repaired boots and shoes as well as repaired harness. In later years, Mr. Glaze bought the Cooper Mill and store. East of the old bridge was located the Empire Store and the Cronkite Hotel, which had a bar and a sitting room on the main floor, and on the second floor, two rows of bedrooms. It was the last operating hotel in the village. Jim Ross had an office building, and next was John Flowelling with his butcher shop. Other businesses operating in the village at this time were Joe Stewart's Buggy and Cutter Shop and Showroom and with a paint shop, Riggs Memorial Shop, Dr. Culver operated a drugstore. The village had its own telephone exchange, a Methodist church, and a Presbyterian church. A building that escaped the 1910 fire was the Heslop Funeral and Undertaking Parlor, which was located at the corner of Lincoln and Main Streets. Following Mr. Heslop in the business were Hugh Brooks, Mr. Slate, and then to John Lampman and his son Glenn. 
In the 1930s, the Lampmans added a hardware store. In later years, Mr. Herb Powers was a proprietor. In 1904, a building was built to house the first bank in the village, named the Sterling Bank of Canada, and James Ross was the first manager. Later, the name was changed to the Standard Bank of Canada, and before it closed in 1939, the name was Canadian Bank of Commerce. In 1910, the Wellport Natural Gas Company brought natural gas to the village for the purposes of light, heat, and power. The head office was established in Wellport, and the first directors were S.M. Cooper, W.T. Sutherland, J.W. Lee, J.R. Goring, C. Henry, J.C. Flewelling, and Frank Middlefelt. Years later, J.A. Coleman bought the business. The first telephone service was established in Wellenport in 1904 and was part of the Ridgeville Exchange that served Fenwick, Fawnhill, Boyle, North and South Pelham. Mr. J.R. Goring was named the first manager when it opened in his store. The following formation of the Monk Electoral Division. In 1867, the Monk Agricultural Society was established in 1868 with George Secord, MPP became the first president, and Dilly C. Holmes served as secretary. The fair was very successful over the years and lasted until 1942. The village of Wellenport celebrated the July 1st holiday with a garden party, which a number of area villages also celebrated. The first electoral writing used for both federal and provincial elections was formed in 1867 and was known as the County of Monk, covering the area from the Welland River to Lake Erie. This included Gamesborough and Caster Townships and part of Haldeman. There was also a weekly newspaper called the Wellenport Gazette and was first published in the 1870s. some information on a little hamlet called Middleport. Here again, the early settlers came to this location because of the waterway, the 20 Mile Creek. It was situated between Smithville and St. Anne's in Lot 28, Concession 6 in Gainsborough Township. The settlement ran from the old Sims Place and the Elliott Taylor residence at the intersection of Highway 20 and Patterson Road. A dam was built on the 20 Creek and many businesses were established because of the water supply. A school was built in the early 1800s and over the years there were some three schools built before the last school was moved to Smithville in the 1900s where it formed part of the residence owned by the late Mrs. Dorothy Ecker. This home has now been renovated and a beautiful residence is located there at the corner of 20 Highway and the Regional Road Bypass. Some of the early businesses established at Middleport included the Williams Cabinet Shop, noted for its construction of furniture from Bird's Eye Maple, a tannery on the site of the Elliott Taylor residence, a small sawmill operated by Mr. Huntsman, which was located on the south side of the creek with a woolen mill close by. Dr. Abraham Kelly was the local medical professional until he passed away in 1931. One of the first school teachers was Sarah Burkholder, and according to early history, some of her pupils were Eastman, Page, 
Dalton, Hill, Oil, Kelly, and Salmons. Middleport also had its own grocery store and post office in a home of Sylvanus McPherson, situated on the west bend of the creek where it nearly reaches the road. The residence was later destroyed by fire. There is more history of small villages which were assembled along the many waterways through the local townships, which I will include in future podcasts. But in closing this podcast, I want to include a small segment about the first roads that were built across the Niagara Peninsula. The dirt surface roads were noted for being quagmires of mud for much of each year. In low places, logs were laid side by side at right angles to the direction of the road forming corduroy. The top surface was then leveled with the dirt. The dirt roads, however, after ditching and seasonal repair with horse-drawn scrapers to fill the ruts, could be quite good when dry in the summer and frozen in the winter. A few very early roads were built by the order of the Government of Upper Canada, and there is one such road running through West Lincoln. Since Niagara and Lake remained the center of the, for the Niagara District, it was necessary to have road access to and from all parts of the peninsula. Two roads were built especially for this purpose and their impending construction announced in 1801. The first was the Swamp Road or the Niagara Stone Road. The second was the Canberra Road. It started at Drummondville, Niagara Falls, where the Portage Road already gave access to Niagara below the escarpment. From Drummondville, the Canberra Road headed diagonally across country to reach the Welland River below Wellenport, continued westward along at crossing at Port Davidson, then in a direct line to Canberra, Thus, it ran east-west the length of the peninsula, and at Canberra connected with the Talbot Road, which had been extended eastward that far. So it became as an extension of the Talbot Road, and even today it is often referred to locally by that name. And that, folks, is the end of another podcast. Time to close up the printing shop and prepare for another ball game at the local park. Thanks for the support, for the support in listening to my podcast. Thank you.